0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, Lord, Have Mercy. What's wrong about being right? Last summer I read a book by Andrea Lyon called Angel of Death Row, My Life as a Death Penalty Defense Lawyer. In 1995, the Chicago Tribune dubbed Lyon the Angel of Death Row for her 14 years of service in the Cook County Public Defender's Office, where she eventually became chief of the Homicide Task Force. In the book, Lyon describes herself as an unapologetic defender of accused killers, what she calls an archaeologist of social despair. Unearthing layer by layer, my client's descent into criminal jeopardy. A defender of convicted killers, yes. And as I read, I kept thinking how gospelly her story felt. Lyon introduces a dozen or so defendants who make up who make the robbers, evildoers, and adulterers of Luke eighteen eleven look like Boy Scouts. Killers like Lonnie Fields, who murdered a judge and an attorney in a courtroom before 27 witnesses, or Casey Anthony, who was accused of killing her own child. Lyon never romanticizes her clients, excuses their crimes, fudges the truth, or idealizes her work. But as a defender of the unrighteous, whom the righteous love to hate, She believes that every person amounts to more than the worst thing he or she has ever done. She's argued more than 130 homicide cases. In 19 cases, she defended clients who were found guilty of capital murder, arguing that they should be spared the death penalty in favor of lesser punishment. She won all 19 cases. Lyon's story fits perfectly with Luke's parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in chapter eighteen nine to 14 By contrasting two characters as polar opposites, Jesus sets in bold relief two ways of being religious. One way is death-dealing. The other way is life-giving. The Pharisee was religiously righteous, the taxman extorted revenue for the Roman oppressors. The religious expert was smug, sanctimonious, and confident. The outsider was anxious, insecure, and timid. The saint paraded to the temple, while we read how the sinner stood as a distance, as if his physical distance from the sacred temple expressed his spiritual alienation. The righteous man stood up, The sinful man looked down. In an act of shocking narcissism, the Pharisee prayed loudly about himself. The tax collector could barely pray at all. The Pharisee puffed out his chest in pride. The publican beat his breast in sorrow. As in so many Jesus stories that subvert conventional wisdom, the parable punchline culminates with a reversal. The respectable, reputable believer, so accomplished, and competent, the one who had done everything right, was rejected. Whereas the secular sinner, disreputable, inadequate, incompetent, quote, went home justified before God. It's hard to imagine a more earnest, conscientious, religious person than the Pharisee. He prayed often. He fasted regularly and he gave generously to help the needy. His spiritual regimen was stringent. But he made two tragic mistakes in his religious life, one about himself and one about other people, the combination of which is toxic to authentic spirituality. First we read that the Pharisee looked down on everybody else Contempt for others lurks in the human heart, bubbling up all too easily and frequently. I'm glad I don't have tattoos like that guy. Thank God I'm not as narrow-minded as that conservative Republican. We imagine that in denigrating others that we validate ourselves, or that at least we'll compare favorably. To disparage criminals like those in Lyon's book might feel good but that's a dark place that Jesus tells us to avoid. We harm people when we do this to them. And even worse, while imagining that we elevate ourselves, we harm our very own selves. In the epistle of James chapter 3 verse 2, we read that we all stumble in many ways. What we all need when we flounder and fail is not moral condescension, but human compassion. Not humiliation, but empathy. Not shame, but hope. I've always loved the tender wisdom of St. Maximus the Confessor from the 7th century. He writes, The person who has come to know the weakness of human nature has gained experience of divine power. Such a person never belittles anyone. He knows that God is like a good and loving physician who heals with individual treatment each of those who are trying to make progress. The flip side of condescension toward others is the justification of yourself. This was a Pharisee's second mistake. The Pharisee thanked God that he was, quote, not like other people, a thief, an evildoer, or an adulterer. His religious narcissism was a form of spiritual self-justification of which there are almost endless permutations. It's scary to think about the many ways we try to justify ourselves before God, before others, and even to our own selves. We'll invoke almost anything to justify ourselves. Intelligence, alma mater, money, family, sports, politics, and work. A common form of self-justification invokes your zip code a transparent insinuation that net worth somehow equals self-worth. Ethical self-justification assures me that, quote, I'm better than the next person. To a greater or lesser degree, I've tried these versions of self-justification, and I can report they don't work. Society is relentless in demanding proofs and justifications from us and it's easy to take the bait, especially if you're an accomplished person with lots of ammunition who can rise to the challenge. But we should listen to the fourth century desert saint John the Dwarf who once observed, we have put aside the easy burden, which is self-accusation, and weighed ourselves down with the heavy burden, self-justification. To live without self-justification makes me feel vulnerable and naked. But when you think about it, living without self-justifications is extraordinarily liberating. As soon as you accept that you're accepted by a good God, you never for any reason need to prove yourself. To get to that place, Jesus says that we need only seven words, those mumbled by the tax collector as he stood at a distance and stared at the ground. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The moment we breathe those words and cast our unadorned selves upon God, we experience his love without conditions or limits. Correctly understood and spoken from the heart, that's the most important prayer anyone can pray, and in a sense the only prayer you'll ever need. That's because it proceeds from a clear-eyed appraisal of our human condition and, more importantly, from confidence in the character of a God who welcomes the secular sinner and even the self-righteous saint. And now for further reflection. Consider the early monastic on judging others. The monk, says Abba Moses, must never judge his neighbor at all in any way whatever. They said of Abba Macarius that just as God protects the world, so Abba Macarius would cover the faults he saw as though he did not see them and those he heard as though he did not hear them. And consider Mrs. Turpin from the short story Revelation by Flannery O'Connor. Mrs. Turpin was a good, decent, upright, and proud Roman who did everything right, except that she was a self-righteous racist. She was a person, writes Flannery O'Connor, who, when she entered heaven needed, even her virtues burned away. For books this week, I review Peter Gleick, Bottled and Sold. The Story Behind Our Obsession With Bottled Water Washington DC Island Press 2010 211 pages Before you grab your next bottled water consider the words of Peter Gleick. Every second of every day in the United States a thousand people buy and open a plastic bottle of commercially produced water. And every second of every day in the United States, a thousand plastic bottles are thrown away. 85 million bottles a day. More than 30 billion bottles a year. And for every bottle consumed in the United States, another four are consumed around the world. Our obsession with bottled water, says Peter Gleick, is symptomatic of larger problems, too, like the demise of public water systems, marketing, consumerism, and especially the difference between viewing water as a basic human right for all as opposed to a privately produced and controlled good sold for private profit. Gleick documents the aggressive and spurious attacks against tap water, along with the conflicting claims about its safety. He explains the difference between the so-called source of a bottle of water and its brand. Arctic Clear bottled water, for example, comes from Bartlett, Tennessee, and Coca-Cola's Dasani water originates with, you guessed it, tap water. Taste tests, for example, repeatedly show that consumers can't distinguish tap from bottled water, and yet the power of advertising, marketing, Fraudulent health claims, misleading labels, and convenience all push us to purchase throwaway plastic bottles. Those bottles might be recyclable, as their labels claim, but as Gleick shows in one of his best chapters, that's far different than being truly recycled. The good news is that the war on bottled water has begun and the cachet of bottled water is slowly being replaced with embarrassment and discomfort. Many municipalities, businesses, churches, and schools now refuse to purchase bottled water. In 2008, sales of bottled water dropped for the first time ever. A number of so-called ethical bottled waters have emerged, and Glyke is cautiously optimistic about them. Ethos Water, founded in 2003 and then purchased by Starbucks in 2005, contributes 5 cents for every bottled water sold to nonprofit water projects. Starbucks says that has amounted to $10 million so far. And Gleick observes that if every company did the same for the 30 billion liters of bottled water sold in a single year, over $1.5 billion would go to nonprofit water projects. Each one of us, though, can begin today and follow the advice of Nancy Reagan back in 1980. Just say no to bottled water. Peter Gleick, Bottled and Sold, the story behind our obsession with bottled water. For film this week, I review Winter's Bone from the year 2010. The teenager, Ree is only 17, but she's already negotiating a very complex world of family dysfunctions and social mores of her extended cultural clan. Winter's Bone is set in the isolated Ozark Mountains of southwest Missouri, and it's safe to say that it depicts a part of America that most of us can hardly even imagine, much less say that we know. This is a place where after-school activities include ROTC drills and parenting classes. Rhee's drug dealer father left his wife and three kids and then, unknown to them, used their dilapidated property as collateral for his bond payment. Rhee's mother is a sullen and silent pill popper, while her two younger siblings depend upon her for everything. And so Rhee is faced with a horrible choice, to lose the only meager hope of life they have, the house, find and then betray her father to the law, or violate every cultural code of clan silence about drug dealing and so risk horrible retribution. The dialects, the scenes of backwoods and backwards families, the local ballads, and the remarkable performances not only by Jennifer Lawrence as Re but also by a dozen or so minor characters, many of them non-professionals, all add up to a fantastic film that already has the Oscar buzz. Winter's Bone from the year 2010. And finally for poetry this week, and in keeping with the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector about being right, we've posted a poem called The Place Where We Are Right by Yehudi Amachai. Yehudi Amachai lived from 1924 to the year 2000 and is considered by many people to be Israel's greatest modern poet. Again, the title of this short poem, The Place Where We Are Right. From the place where we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring. The place where we are right is hard and trampled like a yard. But doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole, a plow. And a whisper will be heard in the place where the ruined house once stood. The place where we are right by Yehuda Amachai. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October 24th, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.